If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains descriptions of violence and discrimination against the LGBT community and may be triggering for some listeners. On the night of May 11, 2003, Sakia Gunn was returning home from a night out in Greenwich Village, Manhattan with her friends. But a volatile encounter with two angry men at a bus stop in downtown Newark that night, would turn fatal for Sakia Gunn, who was just 15 years old. The murder of Sakia was vicious and cruel, but unfortunately not a singular event. Her untimely death would spark a community-wide revolution, one that rallied for safety, justice, and representation for the LGBTQ community. Over a decade later, a Washington, D.C. woman named Carice Lewis, would be the target of a brutal murder. Like Sakia, she too was a proud lesbian and the victim of a cruel crime. Carice's body was found shot to death in the trunk of a car that was set on fire. Who is her killer, and what was their motive? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's unearth the vicious murders of Sakia Gunn and Carice Lewis. At 3.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, May 11, 2003, Sakia Gunn, who self-identified as an aggressive or stud lesbian, was waiting for a bus with three of her friends at the corner of Broad and Market Streets in Newark. Sakia and her friends were waiting for the PATH train from Greenwich Village. Sakia and her three friends were young, out lesbians. Sakia was 15 years old, and she and her friends were just out doing what young people do, exploring the world, having fun, maybe getting into a little harmless trouble, and of course, finding themselves. It had been a long night of fun for Sakia, and her mother was expecting her home soon. She lived with her mother Latana and her grandmother Thelma in Valesburg, Newark. 
While waiting at the bus stop, two men stepped out of a white car and propositioned Sakia. When she refused, mentioning to the men that she was not interested because she was gay, things turned violent quickly. According to one of Sakia's friends who was there at the bus stop, angry by Sakia's response, one of the men stabbed her in the chest. Immediately, the two men ran back to the car, got in, and sped away from the scene. Sakia slumped down into the arms of one of her friends, barely holding on to life. Her friend was able to flag down a car that was passing by. She begged the driver to take them to University Hospital nearby. But Sakia never made it there alive. She died in the arms of her friend before she received medical help. In the weeks and months following Sakia's murder, young Newark citizens demanded that the civic leadership of the city pay attention to the dangers that LGBTQ people faced in their everyday lives. They demanded justice for Sakia, who was only in 10th grade at the time of her death. And Sakia's family and friends fought for representation in the media. They were frustrated that Sakia's story wasn't getting the same media coverage as other cases. It was hard to tell if that was because she was black or if it was because she was gay, or if it was both. The Tuesday after Sakia's murder, Sakia's friends and family gathered at the corner of Broad and Market Street, where her last moments were to honor her passing. Amidst the candles and flowers, there was a solitary basketball that many of her friends had signed. Newark was mourning the loss of Sakia, but they were also facing a dark reality, that LGBTQ people were often targets of hate, that Sakia's murder was proof of the work that still needed to be done to ensure the safety of those in the LGBTQ community. On Thursday afternoon, as hundreds of mourners at City Hall denounced Sakia's killing and demanded justice and real action to create safe spaces, for those in the LGBTQ community, her killer turned himself in to Newark police. Sakia's killer, Richard McCullough, who was 29 at the time, was finally in the custody of Newark police by May 16, 2003. I want to take a few seconds to point out how despicable this man is all around. On top of committing a hate crime, he was also attempting to get Sakia, a 15-year-old girl, to come with him to a party that night she was killed. McCullough was originally indicted under New Jersey's bias crime statute. Under stiffer penalties for bias crimes, he was facing more than 110 years in prison if he was found guilty. At the initial hearing, McCullough admitted to calling Sakia a homophobic slur, but in the same breath, he also attempted to blame Sakia for her own death, claiming that she ran into his knife. I think it's pretty clear that this man felt justified in his actions, and at the time felt no remorse for taking the life of an innocent girl. Instead of facing the biased crime charges, in exchange for McCullough's plea, Assistant Essex County Prosecutor Thomas McTeague agreed to reduce the murder indictment to aggravated manslaughter with bias intimidation, according to the Washington Post. McCullough was now set to face only 20 to 25 years in prison. After the plea deal, Sakia's family had mixed feelings and I completely understand why they would. Sure, her killer was ultimately going to have to pay for the crime he committed, but to me, it also seems like Richard McCullough got it easy for committing an obvious hate crime. More so, it sends the wrong message. Her killer would be able to leave prison after only 20 years or so and continue to live life. Sakia would never have that opportunity because of the life he took that day. Sakia's friend, the one who held her as she was dying, had this to say after the plea deal was made. Quote, 
I feel that justice is being served halfway, but there's some things you can't change, end quote. I truly hope that Sakia's friend is wrong. I hope that Sakia's murder was at least able to incite change and bring attention to the need for safe spaces for people in the LGBTQ community. Sakia Gunn's murder was the subject of a two-day series in the Washington Post in October 2004. The series was called Young and Gay in Real America, and it was written by Anne Hull, who spent months reporting on the lives of young lesbians in Newark in the aftermath of Sakia's murder. The commitment to tell these stories by reporter Anne Hull could not distract from the obvious choice by other media outlets not to cover Sakia Gunn's case with the same enthusiasm as other cases, cases that had white victims at the center. Using the LexisNexis database, a company that makes legal and journalistic documents more accessible electronically, Kim Pearson, a professor at the College of New Jersey, compared the media coverage of Sakia Gunn's death to the 1998 murder of Matthew Shepard. It turns out, 659 stories were found in major newspapers about Shepard's murder, compared to 21 articles about Gunn's murder in the seven months following her death. Matthew Shepard was a student at the University of Wyoming who was beaten, tortured, and left to die on October 6, 1998. His killers, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, were arrested shortly after the attack and charged with first-degree murder. His case received significant media coverage, and there was constant debate about what role his sexuality, as a gay man, played as the motive for the commission of the crime. During her research, Kim Pearson also noted, that not only were Shepard's attackers tried and convicted during a period of seven months, but that it took nearly that long for Sakia's attacker to be indicted. While Matthew Shepard's sexuality was taken into account in the trial of his killers, it can't be said that this is always the case for individuals who are victims of violent crimes in the LGBTQ community. According to the Huffington Post, media bias is multiplied where butch lesbians are concerned and compounded if you're a woman of color. Lesbian relationships are typically downplayed, sexuality is often omitted, and there's a resulting lack of focus with both investigations and the media on potential hate crimes, even where the murder is exceptionally horrific. The community in Newark continued to honor Sakia's death by demanding policy changes. Sakia's friends, who were also students at her high school, Westside High School, demanded that there were policy changes that protect LGBTQ teens and that the school board would be held accountable for the lack of concern and compassion when helping students after the murder. Older members of the community also stepped up to help by founding the Newark Pride Alliance. Alongside this, the first Newark chapter of Parents and Families of Lesbians and Gays was founded, and the national organization established a scholarship in Sakia's memory. Sakia was only 15 years old when she was stabbed and killed by a 29-year-old man who couldn't handle rejection from a child. Richard McCullough was predatory, hateful, and unremorseful. Sakia was killed because she was lesbian. She was murdered just for being herself. Although the justice system didn't consider her and the media ignored her, her community and her family and friends made strides in making Newark a safer place for the LGBT community. Even though it's not their job to, they committed to ensuring that no one would ever forget her name or her story. Just a few days after Christmas, 
police were responding to reports of gunfire on Adrian Street, just south of G Street in Washington, D.C. They arrived at the scene around 7.30 p.m. They were shocked when they arrived and they didn't see a shootout, but rather a vehicle on fire. D.C. Fire and emergency medical services were called to the scene. After the fire was put out, police opened the trunk of the vehicle and what they found was horrific. They found an unconscious woman in the trunk. She appeared to have been shot multiple times, and when they checked to see if she was still alive, they realized they were too late. She was already dead. When police took statements from the witnesses in the area, neighbors said they heard multiple gunshots ring out in the alley behind the 800 block of Adrian Street, southeast. These same neighbors also told police that moments later, they noticed a raging fire coming from that direction and screams emanating from the trunk as the woman tried to escape. The woman's body had not been consumed by the fire yet, so police were able to make an identification of the body as belonging to 23-year-old Carice Lewis. Carice Lewis didn't have an easy life growing up. At the age of 11, she was orphaned and left to be raised by her grandparents. She was taken in by her grandparents after her mother died from a brain aneurysm and her father was tragically murdered in the D.C. area. After their deaths, Carice struggled deeply with the loss of her parents. Before her murder, Carice had spent some time in jail, but her grandfather said that Carice was trying her best to turn her life around before she died. Carice even took up a construction site job and told her grandfather that she was very excited because she had recently taken some classes and was looking forward to taking more. People who knew Carice knew her to be a free spirit and full of life. According to her grandfather, William Sharp, quote, she would light up a room just talking and laughing, end quote. After finding Carice's body, police had no suspect or motive for the crime. Although Carice was a proud lesbian, police believed that her sexuality had nothing to do with the crime. While police were investigating, Carice's heartbroken friends were frustrated and disappointed by the lack of media coverage for their friend's case. According to an article on Carice Lewis's murder in the Huffington Post, when lesbians are murdered, the distinct media bias keeps the general population in the dark. As the new year approached, the search for Carice's killer continued. Police still did not have any suspects named in the case or any possible motive for such a brutal crime. However, by February 2018, an arrest affidavit was filed in the DC Superior Court by homicide detectives who were working the case. In this arrest affidavit, the detectives presented evidence that Carice's murder was linked to two other murders of young men that Carice knew. And these two other murders just so happened to have been committed on the same day as Carice's murder. According to detectives, ballistic tests proved that Carice Lewis and her friend, 27-year-old Armani Nico Coles, were both shot to death with the same weapon, a 45 caliber handgun. Armani's body was believed to have been dumped out of a car alongside Interstate 295 just across the DC line in Capitol Heights, Maryland. And Armani's body was found about one hour before Carice's body was found. On January 9, 2018, Prince George's County Police charged 20-year-old Malik Nathan Lewis with the first-degree murder of Armani Coles. Although they shared the same last name, it was never mentioned in the affidavit if Malik Lewis was related to Carice Lewis in any way. About a month after the arrest of Malik Lewis, on February 10, 2018, another affidavit was filed. 
this one was for the arrest of 23-year-old Ashton Briscoe for Carissa's murder. The affidavit cited that witnesses saw two men standing over the trunk of Carissa's car, a 1998 Lexus, just after the witnesses heard the gunshots in the alley where Carissa's car was parked, around 7.20 p.m. on December 28, 2017. At least one of the witnesses told police that they saw two unknown men run away from the car seconds after it was consumed by the flames. They also told police that they saw these men enter another car through the rear passenger seat and front passenger seat with a third person in the driver's seat. And this same witness recalled watching the car speed away from the alley. According to detectives, an autopsy report showed that Carice was shot 15 times and that it was in fact the gunshot wounds, not the fire, that killed her that night. Was it possible that Malik Lewis, who was charged with killing Armani Coles, was also there when Carice was murdered? Did Malik pull the trigger, or did Ashton Briscoe? And who was the getaway driver? When detectives first questioned Ashton Briscoe about Carice's murder, Briscoe denied he had anything to do with it. But his story quickly changed after he was confronted with evidence that police tracked his cell phone calls and signals. They explained to Briscoe that this evidence placed him at the site of the murder. He then confessed to police that he was at the scene of the crime, but only as the driver of the getaway car. He clarified with police that he didn't know beforehand that the other two people he was with planned to kill Carice. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering if this guy is just downplaying his role in the crime, or even if what he's saying could be true. Well, according to U.S. Attorney Thomas Saunders, Briscoe's alibi could be partially backed up, saying Briscoe's role in the murder was to, quote, serve as a lookout for witnesses and law enforcement, end quote. Even if Ashton Briscoe was only the getaway driver, he could still be legally charged with murder. According to the Washington Blade, under DC's criminal code, anyone who aids and abets the commission of a murder or is part of a conspiracy or plan to murder someone can be legally charged with the murder, even if they're not the person who fired a gun or used another means to kill the victim. It turned out that Ashton Briscoe was tied to another murder, the murder of Armani Coles. Cell phone records obtained by the investigators for Briscoe's phone, as well as the phones of the other two accomplices Briscoe identified, proved that these three individuals communicated with each other on their respective phones earlier that day on December 28th. Not to mention, phone records also showed that Briscoe was at or near the site of where Armani Coles' body was dumped out of a car along Interstate 295, one hour prior to Carice Lewis's murder. All that was left for detectives was to figure out the motive. Why did these individuals want to kill Carice Lewis? Thanks to a few tips from people who knew Carice Lewis and Ashton Briscoe and the other two suspects, detectives speculated that one possible motive for Carice's murder could have been revenge. The theory was that Carice was targeted in an act of revenge because of her association and possible friendship with the man charged in killing someone named Ronze Green. Ronze Green was shot to death in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven on December 28, 2017, at 11.20 a.m., the same day as Carice's murder. Police felt comfortable with this theory for motive because they learned through cell phone chatter and phone signal locations that someone named Dennis Whitaker and a person only identified as Suspect 1 at the time, along with Ashton Briscoe, visited Ronze Green in the hospital that he was taken to after being shot. It could be implied that police considered the visit to the hospital to see their dying friend as support for the theory that Ronze Green's death prompted at least Malik Lewis and Suspect 1 to decide to kill Armani Coles and Carice Lewis in retaliation. The man responsible 
Veronze Green's murder was arrested December 31st, 2017, just a few days after Carice was murdered. It turned out that Dennis Whitaker, who was 23 years old at the time, was Ronze Green's killer, but also a known associate of Carice Lewis and Armani Coles. However, by February 2018, Malik Lewis was still not charged in Carice's murder. Ashton Briscoe told detectives that on the night of Carice's murder, Malik Lewis gave him the keys to a car, a black 2017 Toyota Camry that turned out to belong to Armani Coles, the young man who was found dead on the same night as Carice. According to Briscoe, Malik asked him to drive the car and follow Malik, who would be driving another car that turned out to be Carice Lewis's 1998 Lexus. Briscoe told police that he never knew that these two cars belonged to one dead person and soon to be deceased Carice. Ashton Briscoe told police that he did what Malik asked and followed him to the alley on Adrian Street, where Carice's body would be found soon after. According to a statement from Ashton Briscoe, once they made it to the alley, Malik suddenly stopped the blue Lexus and told Briscoe to drive the Camry to the end of the alley and wait there. Malik Lewis allegedly told Ashton that he had left something and needed to go back for it. After waiting at the end of the alley for 10 minutes, Briscoe said that he suddenly heard gunshots ring out. Then Briscoe told police that he saw Malik and suspect one running away from the blue Lexus and towards the car he was in, the Camry. In an arrest affidavit, Ashton Briscoe basically corroborated the witness statements that were given to police, saying suspect number one entered the Camry through a rear door and Malik Lewis entered the vehicle through the front passenger door and sat in the passenger seat while holding a gun. The affidavit adds, quote, Following this, investigators were able to determine that the cellular phones used by defendant Briscoe, Malik Lewis, and subject number one moved two to three miles south from the Armani Coles homicide to the area of the Carice Lewis homicide. All three phones were in the area of the Carice Lewis homicide at or near the time of her murder, end quote. The affidavit didn't say how or where Malik Lewis obtained possession of Carice's car or where and when she was placed in the car's trunk. It also didn't mention where Malik Lewis allegedly shot Armani Coles and how he or someone else obtained possession of Armani's car before his body was dumped along the side of Interstate 295. Even though police had one of the suspects in custody, they still had two more suspects to arrest in the murder of Carice Lewis. More than five months later, police finally announced the arrest of the second suspect, who was named as Marcel Vines, the person often referred to as Suspect 1 or Subject 1 by police. He was 22 years old and from Southeast D.C. Vines was charged on August 22, 2018, with first-degree murder while armed in connection with Carice's death. A few days later, the third suspect, Malik Lewis, was finally arrested and charged with first-degree murder while armed. And it was also revealed that Malik and Carice were not related to one another. Since January 9, 2018, Malik Lewis was being held at the Prince George's County Jail for the murder of Armani Nico Coles until he was transferred to the D.C. Homicide Branch Office for the murder of Carice Lewis. In an August 7th affidavit, filed in D.C. Superior Court in support of Marcel Vine's arrest, D.C. Police Homicide Detective Brian Wise stated that evidence obtained by investigators showed, quote, probable cause existed to believe that Marcel Vines, Malik Lewis, and Ashton Briscoe knowingly and willfully conspired and agreed to kill Armani Coles and Carice Lewis, and knowingly and willfully participated in the homicide of Armani Coles and Carice Lewis within Washington, D.C., end quote. 
It was also revealed in these documents that detectives later learned that the Camry Malik drove was actually a car that Armani Coles had rented a few days prior to his murder, leading detectives to believe that he and Carice Lewis were each abducted and killed, most likely by the suspects inside their own cars. However, the charging documents didn't reveal which or how many of the three men arrested for the two murders shot the two victims. Also, it wasn't made obvious if police believed that Carice was in any way targeted because of her sexuality. The story of Carice Lewis is tragic. She lived a troubled life, but she was taking steps to turn it around. And before she ever got the chance, she was gunned down and left to die in a burning car, all because she was associated with the wrong person. Her sexuality may not have been the reason why she was murdered, but it was a significant part of who she was. Although she lost her parents young, it is clear that she was loved by family and friends. Her ex-girlfriend and best friend Mercedes talked to her every day, but must now figure out how to live life without her. Carissa's story is worthy of being told. Just because she wasn't a straight white woman doesn't mean that her life was any less important or that she was any less of a victim. The media's choice not to provide appropriate coverage of the case only perpetuates a culture of apathy towards violence against the LGBTQ community and makes it seem like black lesbian women aren't likely targets of violence the same way as other communities are. The stories of Sakia Gunn and Carice Lewis are proof that we have a long way to go in making the world a safer place for everyone. If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with me some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. And don't forget to follow the Lost Crimes Library so you won't miss any new episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.